The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Hey there, and welcome to episode two of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, the show that dares to take you to hell and back as we explore the dark midnight of the comic book industry in the 1990s as it's presented through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Currently scorching the asphalt with flaming wheels of the demonic motorcycle, I'm Michael. And giving you my best penance stare from the depths of an empty flaming eye socket, it's Adam, and you're guilty. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get into it. Yeah, so we had our first episode come out. Great response. Thank you, everybody who was willing to reach out to us and let us know your thoughts. Hope to give you much more to chew on this episode as well. Michael, what'd you think about the response? You know, I was, I was pretty excited about it. We got a couple of really nice tweets and people reaching out to us. Do we want to dive into Willie Lumpkin's mailbag and read them out right now? Let's open it up! At Crooked Ninja, a.k.a. Crooked Ninja Turtle, says, Really enjoyed episode zero. Hearing your stories about how you picked up collected comics in your first exposure hit close to home. Looking forward to more eps. At Seamork26, a.k.a. Chris Mork, great first episode, guys. Can really relate to Michael when he said he had to hide his fandom. Talking about comics was not going to earn you any cool points. Maybe Kool-Aid points. Ah, <laughs> there's a Kool-Aid Man comic, you know. And there's a Kool-Aid Man Funko Pop now, believe it or not. It's the it, it's the most high-demand pop out there. For any I said that wrong. Oh, yeah! <laughs> At Paxton Holly, a.k.a. Paxton Holly, personal friend of mine of Nerd Lunch and Cult Film Club podcast fame, I liked episode zero. Great job, guys. It's interesting you were coming into comics as I was fading out. I finally fully dropped out about 1993 and then returned hardcore in 2009-ish with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So that's going to be cool. And PAX, we have someone coming on next episode. We'll get into it towards the end of the show. But I think you guys are going to have a kinship. It's going to be a real interesting discussion that we have with that guest next time around. That's cool. It's actually kind of funny because I I don't remember exactly when I faded out of comics in the 90s, but it was, I'd say, probably around 95. I took a hiatus and then took me almost till, I think, close to the end of college to dive back in. I kind of kept, you know, in the loop by looking through Wizard Magazine in particular, but I wasn't picking up books as regularly as I was prior to that. So the next tweet was from at Regal Fan, a.k.a. Jody Yurden. Great episode, guys. I love hearing origin stories. Here's my first book, Detective Comics 553, which is definitely not something a three-year-old should probably 
needed at that time. <laughs> and I don't know if you have seen this cover, Michael, but it is pretty freakish. Like, Batman's got some sort of, I don't know if it's supposed to be, like, a mask, but he's got this, like, skull face over his head, and he's, like, struggling for air. Like, it's a real, real dramatic cover. It's, it's something pretty intense. So you guys should go look that up, Detective Comics 553, and a three-year-old reading that. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty nuts. But speaking <laughs> of skulls, you know, speaking of it all, October 1991, issue two of Wizard Magazine features a Ghost Rider cover by Javier Saltares. Is that a name that immediately jumps out to you? Not really. Not in a long time. I mean, I had to look it up. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. It's one of those things. Yeah, it's like apparently he did some pretty iconic ghostwriter art back in the day, and he was part of that whole relaunch and all of that, but I was not aware of him as an artist, at least not by name. He's probably like second tier, third tier in terms of popularity, in terms of hype. And there's an, an interview with him in the magazine. What I found interesting was they asked him how he got started in comics, and he's like, I had a friend, Mark... Now, this is another one. Is it Texera or Teixeira? I don't know how you pronounce his name I, after all I, these years. I think it's Teixeira, but yeah. I'm not sure. So apparently they were friends in high school, and then they both worked on Ghost Rider at Marvel. So I, I don't know who got who the job. Yeah. But the other thing I found really interesting, too, is they mentioned that he went from Ghost Rider to working on a Flash comic with John Byrne. And I was like, wait, what was that? And then they, they clarify, they say, is that the one based on the TV series? And he's like, yes. Yeah, if it's about the, based on the TV show, that's pretty cool. I'm, yeah, I'm because there, there was only, and it's not like they did much with the TV show continuity in the comics, but there was a Flash TV special that was kind of like the size of an annual that had a bunch of different stories and then like interviews and things from the behind the scenes of the show. So I guess he was doing a story in that. And that's actually one I've been meaning to pick up because I'm such a fan of that series. Now it's time to take a break and remind you that Wizards, the podcast guide to comics is sponsored this week by minifiguresmarket.com your source for the best custom printed lego minifigures of your favorite pop culture characters beautifully designed figures based on classic cartoons tv movies and of course comic books pick up spider-man's entire rogues gallery like craven the hunter carnage mysterio and more how about DC comic baddies like Deathstroke the Terminator, Bane, or Bizarro? Even old school indie comics characters like Miracle Man, which is a personal favorite of mine, can be had in Lego form at minifiguresmarket.com today. We're excited to announce that we have another minifigure giveaway courtesy of minifiguresmarket.com. At the end of this episode, stay tuned. And now back to the show. The other thing that's being promoted on the cover here, got your starburst in the bottom right corner, and it's telling you, win a platinum Spider-Man number one. Details inside. If you recall from last issue, we talked about all the different variants of Spider-Man number one. The platinum issue, just to remind you, was a very exclusive copy that was only sent to the comic book store owners. So it was kind of like an award to say thank you. So here they're saying you could actually own one of these, because even 
even in the in the price guide at the time it was going for like three hundred and twenty five dollars. Wow! But in order to win this Platinum Spider Man number one, at least be eligible, you had to take a quiz. So they actually had a six question quiz inside. And I'm gonna try to give this to you, Michael. Oh God! Here we go. Let's see if you're gonna win a Platinum Spider Man number one. All right. First of all, he's amazing and spectacular. Spider Man. Very good, very good. <laughs> they gave you a softball to start. All right, now, the main villain in Armageddon 2001. We talked about him last episode. Oh, we did talk about it last episode. I forgot about it already. I would fail now. All right, I'm out. I, I'll give you a hint. It's a type of butterfly. Monarch? There you go. All oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> I get you on the butterfly trivia, not the comics trivia for there you go. a crossover event. All right, number three. In the future, he is the law. Judge Dredd? Yeah, isn't that weird? They put Judge Dredd in there? Number four. This is going to be a hard one. Recently impersonated Iron Fist in the pages of Namor the Submariner, which was a John Byrne book at the time. Recently impersonated Iron Fist? While you think about it, just to give you the quick history, so at the end of the Power Man Iron Fist comic book series, Iron Fist gets killed in a really weird way. I knew that. Didn't Daredevil impersonate him at some point? I think he did, but... But I think it was later than that. Yeah. Oh, man. I'll I'll give you another hint. It's not a hero. So they weren't impersonating him, and it was a good thing. I'm going to take a guess, and I'm probably wrong, but it's a a villain who can mimic other people's movements, and I was going to say Taskmaster. Ooh, see, that's a great guess. You just need to take it one step further. It's a shapeshifter. Got another guess there? From way back at the beginning of Marvel history. I mean, I'm thinking about the original Defenders with, like, Namor and the original Human Torch. That's too far back. <laughs> That's, like, way, way back. Yeah, I don't Marvel know. Age of Comics. So this was, it was actually the Super Scroll of all people. Oh, okay. So you gotta think John Byrne wrote Fantastic Four, so of course he has that connection. And okay. So anyway, yes. I don't know how many people were reading the Namor comic at the time. I have like four or five issues just because I love John Byrne. And this is pre-Google, so they had to really know their stuff. Yeah. Alright, now this is another one. You gotta know your Ghost Rider lore. The new Ghost Rider insists that he is not this creature. He's not this creature. Who is, um... The Grim Reaper? Very good, very good guess. So the hint I'm going to give you is that, remember, at this time, the new Ghost Rider is Danny Ketch. Right. And he's been possessed by some sort of demon. But this Ghost Rider demon says, I'm not the other demon who possessed... Johnny Blaze. Do you know his demon's name? (laughs) My, my, My Ghost Rider knowledge is about as much as my advanced calculus knowledge well, we're gonna fix that for you soon here <laughs> but it's Zarathos. oh yeah i would have gotten that one right off the bat <laughs> i'm sitting in front of two laptops here and i couldn't have gotten that one <laughs> all right here's your final one you're, you're gonna get it you're gonna come off strong at the end close it out marvel superhero team on both coasts Avengers? There you go. All right. So (laughs) together, our combined knowledge, I will say that we will at least get an entry and we'll find out if we win that Platinum Spider-Man number one. Well, looking it up on eBay right now, it hasn't gone up 
much in value. Graded comics at a 9.6 have at 375. Okay. If it was three and change then, you know, some people are asking over 500 for it, but on average it's about 375. Fair enough. All right. So we had a little fun up top there, but these are the features in this particular issue. And I will say that it has grown a bit, or at least feels like it's more fleshed out than issue number one. So first off is more than a ghost of a chance, which is that interview with cover artist Javier Soltares. Dracula, the king of the vampires, because this is October. It's a Halloween issue, you know. Ghost Rider, then and now. So that's going to give us the history of the Ghost Rider name and characters through the years. Platinum Spider-Man contest. Hey, we just entered. This is a random one. November 22nd, 1963, 12.30 p.m. That's the title of the article, and it has all to do with the writer named Stephen Grant, and he did this comic, and I'm not going to get into it, because it's not anything that either of us are interested in. It's like this really weird historic comic, it's a really long interview that takes up too much space in this magazine. Finally, grading your comics, the comic book price guide, trading cards... The new Top 100, the best-selling books for the last three years, Picks from the Wizard's Hat, Wizard Comic Watch, new up-and-coming artist, and that's an interview with Sam Keith, and Find the Zaretsky. I don't know what a Zaretsky is, but there's a picture of this guy. I assume he is a hockey player. It just sounds like a hockey player name, yeah. and he's got a mullet and everything. So anyway, basically, it's like their first scavenger hunt. Find where we hid him in the magazine. <laughs> yeah, so there we go right there. We've got our table of contents. Like I said, we're going to get into some of this in our conversation. But first, Wave Riders Wayback Machine. <laughs> All right, so I'm excited here, Michael, to set the scene now. As you know, when we go back in time here, it's 1991, it's October. We want to talk about what was in theaters, what were we hearing on the radio, what what was going on as people were thumbing through this issue. So just as far as film releases for October 1991, first on the list, Suburban Commando with Hulk Hogan and Christopher Lloyd. A classic. That That is really probably his best movie. I know a lot of people love No Holds Barred, but Suburban Commando kind of beats out Mr. Nanny, that third Three Ninjas movie. You know, it, it's, it's in the same vein of like Kindergarten Cop and, and that kind of stuff, but it was just, you know, slapstick and whatever, but it was fun. And it, I, I remember that movie. It's a cute movie. And, you, and it was one of those things when you saw it on TV years later, you're like, oh, I'm going to check this out. It's Hulk Hogan. He's in a movie. Yeah, let's watch it. Next up is, wow, for Phil. Film fans, here's a crazy one. Highlander 2. I know it's bad, but I secretly love this movie. I know it I know it's completely off the wall and do you know Highlander 2? Oh yeah, there's there's multiple cuts. You got your Renegade cut, yeah. you got the director's cut. In one version, they're aliens. It's just crazy how they messed with all the mythology of everything. When it was kind of straightforward and simple in the original film. I approve that movie because it's so, <laughs> because, it's, because it's so nuts and it's so, there's so many versions. I love it. So, yeah, I way. think the best part of it is it seemed to be what everybody was into in the 90s but hoverboards when he's yeah. having that fight with the bad guys on the on the hoverboards that's pretty awesome all right next up another classic earnest scared stupid is this the halloweenish one or is this the one yeah 
yeah, because Ernest goes to jail is the one where he has like evil Ernest and him and like uh-huh. this is probably my least favorite Ernest movie because it was just almost too goofy to be like oh my god I was eight years old nine years old I'm like this movie's giving me a headache because it was so so out there but it has Eartha Kitt Catwoman she's in it it does have Eartha Kitt plays Kitt. a crazy old lady plus I I liked the idea however gross it was but just like that he's fighting these goblins and turning kids into little wooden statues because I didn't see Ernest goes to camp until years later and I didn't mm-hmm. really even see Ernest saves Christmas. So for me, it was Ernest scared stupid and Ernest goes to jail. And those were yeah. the only Ernest outside of like on a rainy day. I remember junior high, they showed us slam dunk Ernest, <laughs> which was straight to video. He gets a pair of magic sneakers and now he can do all this stuff. Of course he did. That one I never saw. That one I never saw. Yeah. And then the last one for movies, John Hughes, for some reason, getting Jim Belushi into the act with Curly Sue. Do you it was, this movie? I, I, I do remember this movie. I have a, a younger sister, so I do remember this movie because we did see this in the theater. My mother took my sister and I. It's a cute movie. It's, you know, it's like three men and a baby, three men and a little lady. Uh, look who's talking. A very big thing in that time period to have those kind of adults with a little kid. Like, you know, Cop and a Half was another good one, which I always liked. But this is my confession now for you, Michael, which is you mentioned the other movie that is very important to me as well kindergarten cop earlier kindergarten cop and curly sue are the first movies that i cried at (laughs) no really i'm only nine years old when i'm seeing these movies in theaters and for some reason there's like the scene where they're like playing piano or something in the rich lady's house and they're all a family now and i was so happy that she had a family (laughs) and then in kindergarten cop when he's getting taken away in the ambulance and all the kids are chasing after him yeah definitely have that and the other confession is i saw all of these movies except for Highlander 2 in theaters which means I was in the theaters a lot in October of 1991 I can honestly tell you other than Highlander 2 yes I was in the theater as well for all of these movies wow see that's awesome alright now moving on to music if you were going to turn on the radio it's Hammer Time that's right MC Hammer released his Too Legit to Quit album which is really his last big hit unless you count like the Adam's family rap. I don't think it shook the world the way he wanted it to. I do love this song, though. I loved MC Hammer at the time. I had so many quote unquote hammer pants growing up. <laughs> the baggier, the better. Oh, I loved them. I had one pair that I wore just for a brief time. You know, at this probably the same time I was growing out a rat tail to look like one of the new kids on the block. That was my, oh, no. my attempt at being cool and hip. But for me, MC Hammer, this is strange, but it's all about the Hammerman cartoon on Saturday mornings. Yeah. So Gramps opened up the bag, took out the magical shoes. They jumped on Stanley's feet and he soon began to groove. Anyway, it's just like <laughs> such a funny premise and the animation was terrible. Terrible. On that Hammerman cartoon, it was so jerky, and but it, but just the premise of it cracked me up as a kid. It was the same era where you were getting like Macaulay Culkin and Wish Kid, where he had a magic baseball glove and Pro Stars with Wayne Gretzky oh, and Michael Pro Jordan. Pro Stars, yeah, Bo Pro Jackson, stars that's your Bo guy. Jackson, my guy. <laughs> Let me tell you, but that was the thing. Like this was the time period where you know if you were a major celebrity of some sort, whether it's music or film or or sports they were trying to get 
every kind of merchandise out for them, whether it was a cartoon show, a comic book. I remember getting Sports Illustrated of Michael Jordan and Bo Jackson. I could like mail away for his autograph and you could tell it came back and it wasn't the same as the poster. It was like some intern was signing his name somewhere, but yeah, whatever. It's cool. Went so far as to even like Roseanne Barr had her own cartoon show at that point. And you're she like, did. what? Yeah, Little Rosie. Yeah. I remember seeing that, and I was like, okay, it's gone too far. Next up, uh, on the alternative scene, last time we talked Pearl Jam, we had Nirvana, and now the next month, Soundgarden releases Bad Motor Finger. Wow. So that's a major album for a lot of people. That wasn't my cup of tea back in the day. In 91, it wasn't my cup of tea. I think I appreciated it more my higher years in high school and early college than I did you know, when I was nine or ten years old. Yeah, and I was, I was more of an audio slave guy, so I caught him on the tail end. This is why we're friends. <laughs> this is why we're friends. I love audio slave. Oh, man. Rage Against the Machine and Chris Cornell together was like, oh, perfect. I even like their later singles like that, Original Fire. I love that song. They even have the song from that Miami Vice movie, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, also, for you punk fans out there, Pennywise released their debut album. At least in my neck of the woods in Southern California, Pennywise was huge. Like, everybody was wearing their shirts, and I see bumper stickers and everything all over the place. So I know that they connected with a lot of people. And finally, on the hip-hop front, this is kind of hard. We had to say bye-bye to the Fat Boys. They released their final album, Mac Daddy. Oh, what a shame that was. It broke so many people's hearts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was one of those things. They were a huge act, but sorry, just didn't survive into the 90s. But now that we've set the scene, I think it's time to jump into Punisher's Price Guy. So since we're talking a lot about Ghost Rider here, and again, like I said, my knowledge of Ghost Rider pre-Nicolas Cage is limited. I looked up a couple of issues here. This is the second series of Ghost Rider, and Ghost Rider number one. Do you want to guess what the value of this book is? Well, so that's the thing. So as I was thinking about it, I'm like, with all the Ghost Rider movies, he was on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. You know, it just feels like the character has stayed somewhat relevant or even became more relevant in the mainstream. So people would be all about getting that. So I would think, you know, it's probably for number one, I would imagine around like 30 bucks. That's what I'm thinking you could get. You know, it's like, yeah, because everybody wants to know. Now, granted, the Danny Ketch character hasn't come around, which is what we're talking about that second scene series first issue why don't you lay it on us what was it going for back then in the range of about 25 to 30 dollars but you want to know what it's worth right now what's it telling us it's worth about a buck that is wild. Yeah, I think it also, again, falls into that situation where at the time, you know, the first print comes out and it's got a pretty awesome cover on it. It's very iconic. And then they did a second print after that, which had like a glow in the dark cover. And we're going to get into this in a little bit more detail later on in the show. But I think it just maybe again fell into that overproduction and you got all those copies out there. It's just not going to last. Yeah. So I have a story. I believe at our preview episode, I mentioned that I had a chance to get an issue of The Ray number 1 signed by Joe Quesada in the early days of 
my comic book collecting. And during that same visit, my friend's dad had also bought me a copy of Ghost Rider number 21 for him to sign, which was a cover that Joe had done. Because it's just a plain white cover. And then you've got this like broken, he looks like he's been snapped apart sort of Ghost Rider and his flames are out. There's just kind of like a little wisp of smoke coming off him. And he's got this spear shoved through his eye socket that's like connecting him to the ground and he's just kind of like hanging off it. That was that cover I had that was just like, whoa. And then Jimmy Palmiotti, who's a real good friend of Joe Quesada, you know, they do a lot of projects together. He was there too and he had done a cover. I think he had just like inked a cover of Ghost Rider and so I got him to sign that as well. Oh, man. If you had both their signatures... That's going for a hundred bucks on eBay right now. Wow. Just Casada is about twenty five. One of them actually drew like a ghost writer skull as part of the signatures that's showing up in that picture. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I did get them both to sign it. The reason I can't say for sure is I actually gifted both those issues to a friend of mine who's a big Ghost Rider fan. We'll hope to have him on the show somewhere down the line. So we're talking about Ghost Rider here. A lot of you guys will know Johnny Blaze, you know, famously played by Nicolas Cage. And then um, there was an iteration done on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. But this particular one in the 90s is a character named Danny Ketch, which I did not even know existed until doing the research for this episode. I forgot this character was a thing at the time. My knowledge of it is low. So, but we're going to talk about it now. And I'm going I'm to get a little bit of a, a schooling here. Most likely, Adam will know a lot more than me, so we'll, we'll go for it. Yeah, well, it's interesting you mentioned that, Michael, and like forgetting that he existed because at that time, horror comics, at least adding a supernatural element, were growing in popularity in a big way in the 90s. And I think that's what Marvel was trying to tap into by relaunching Ghost Rider. And I think it had to have come from horror movies being such a big box office draw all through the 80s. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, and I think it was just like kids were growing up with that idea of all those supernatural creatures and all that. So why not make one of them a hero, which they had done back in the day. So what's interesting, though, is you said Johnny Blaze. We had Danny Ketch in the 90s. But before Johnny Blaze, even the name Ghost Rider originated way back. And they, they have a whole uh, history here at Wizard. It was actually a 50s comic about a cowboy who called himself Ghost Rider, and he basically would go out and scare all those bandits running around. He would make them think he was a ghost, and Hmm. he could do, like, supernatural stuff, seemingly just, like, with illusions, because he had a cape that was black on the inside, and so he would flip it around, and if he was fighting him at night, he could disappear. They'd be like, where'd he go? Tricks like that. That was actually not even a Marvel comic. That was a publisher called M.E. Comic. And they eventually just kind of disappeared. And then the artist who had drawn Ghost Rider back then for M.E. was now working at Marvel. His name was Dick Ayers. So then he started drawing Ghost Rider for Marvel. So they Hmm. relaunched it. And so that was going on. And Carter Slade was his name. And basically the same M.O. That lasted a few issues, but it, it wasn't super popular forever. And finally, in 1972 is when we get that Marvel.
Marvel Spotlight number five, which was the first appearance of Johnny Blaze as Ghost Rider. And uh, you want to fill people in on his basic origin there, Michael? Basically, doesn't he make a deal with the devil to save his life? And in order to do so, he has to become the Ghost Rider and vanquish evils? In the comic, he's connected to this demon, and yeah, he has to go collect souls for the devil. And the crazy thing is... He premieres in 1972. I believe he got his own book shortly thereafter, so I think it was like 73. And it ran for 10 years. The series didn't end until 1983. Wow. But eventually he did get released and separated from that demon Zarathos that we mentioned during the quiz. And then Johnny Blaze was free, and that was the end of Ghost Rider with issue 81. Hmm. Until then they decide to relaunch it with Danny Ketch, which is just kind of a younger guy. He's more of a high schooler. And then he basically finds the bike, and when he touches it with a bloody hand, then he transforms into Ghost Rider. So that was kind of a little bit of a difference, because that's why I recall, at least from those early issues is he would have to like cut his hand every time and stick it on the fuel cap <laughs> then that's how he would transform we've talked about this in the past about like batman and other characters where they have like legacy characters that pick up the mantle or whatever ghost rider is one of those type of characters where they're not being mentored by another hero it's it's not like Bucky being mentored by Cap. It's a demon possessing somebody as almost like the Spectre does in, in DC. And I, I, I'm okay with that. Like, you know, having different people play this character or be this character in different iterations. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's an interesting visual. To me, Ghost Rider has always been that. You know, people would be like, oh, he's awesome. You know, and even there were Ghost Rider t-shirts and posters and everything else. But I think ultimately Ghost Rider is a character that it is hard to stay connected to him, mainly because if you think about it, like the Punisher, for example, has a personal backstory, right? Like he's punishing the guilty because his family was gunned down by criminals. So he's taken it to the extreme. Ghost Rider is working for the devil and he's not 100% in control of what he's doing you know so it's like the human factor is kind of lost right and and that's you know that's really the thing though it's these demon type characters they're they're very niche where like a punisher is just a guy he's a he's a nutcase but he's just a guy he can be killed he can be wounded he you know he's got some sort of vendetta and I was thinking about it just now, and I believe at the time when this Ghost Rider launched, there was like a sequel to Hellraiser that came out around this time, like Hellraiser 2 or something like that, or Hellraiser 3. Yes. So Hellraiser 3 was coming out in, in 92, like in early 92. So it kind of correlated in the sense that, oh, that's going to be a hit movie. We're going to get Ghost Rider back there, get another demon thing. I bet you that was probably their mindset at the time. I mean, and it did lead ultimately to toys and other things, so they did try to develop him as long as they could. But yeah, it was always weird when Ghost Rider would show up as a guest star in a in an issue of somebody's comic, you're like, all right, well, what's going to happen here? I think he was part of the... Was he part of that new Fantastic Four? Yes. Hulk and Wolverine and yeah. Ghost Rider and Spider-Man. This Ghost Rider was affiliated with the Midnight Suns, which was news to me, the Secret Defenders, not Secret Avengers, Secret Defenders, and the new Fantastic Four. Yeah, that, that is so wild. Did I 
come on, we're gonna we're gonna push him to the moon, guys. He's gonna do it. But it's not that the Danny Ketch character has disappeared entirely from Marvel Comics continuity, but I just I think it's it's not endured as much as they maybe thought it would. But if we're wrong, if you're a major Ghost Rider fan out there, let us know at Wizards Comics on Twitter. We'd love to hear it. You can send it to wizardscomicspod at gmail.com. Let us know if Ghost Rider is bigger than we're giving him credit for at this point. But speaking of big, Michael, it's time to check in on Rob and Todd's hype tally. Oh boy. Now, in this particular issue, like I said, we don't have either of them providing cover art. Their books are still listed in the top 10, but it's one of those things where Todd was already getting towards the end of his run on Spider-Man. You know, Rob is still going strong with X-Force, but Jim Lee had beat both of them, just to give you the actual numbers. Spider-Man number one sold 2 million copies, X-Force then sold 5 million copies, and then X-Men number one with Jim Lee sold 8 million copies. So it was just growing and growing and growing. It's, it's funny you bring this up. I have X-Men number one. How many copies? <laughs> I, I have one. At the time, it was one of those things where I was like, oh, they're doing an, a number one of X-Men? I have like a jumping on point where I can pick up from. And I I, I picked up maybe the first handful of, at, at the time, but I wasn't, you know, it, the art was amazing because it was Jim Lee at the time. It was Jim Lee like on his real rise, but the book fizzled out for me pretty quick but i remember that number one people were going nuts over that book and i made sure to get my i'm like i gotta get a copy sure what the heck yeah i mean i I got i gotta believe that anybody who's listening right now probably has at least one copy in their log box or just in their memorabilia from their childhood and so i i actually have two but that's just because i was actually uh gifted my friend's older brother's comic collection and so i had my original copy with the gatefold cover that i got the newsstand edition from him Mm -hmm. but all of that x-men hype that being the case in this issue we have rob getting five mentions and todd up in him only by one with six so as our total goes between the two issues rob has a total of 13 and todd is beating him out by one with 14 I'm pretty curious to see how far this goes. Like, I, I want to see the numbers get really high as as the months go on. So, do a quick transition here to Robin's Reading Rainbow. And we're going to discuss a two-part story worked on by both rob and todd the first part of it is spider-man number 16 and the part two of the story is x-force number four so just to catch you up on the storyline of what's going on here in x-force number three so the issue that was preceding this juggernaut and black tom yes black tom cassidy everybody's favorite x-men villain they had basically taken over one of the world trade center towers and like they were a classic pairing they had been together back in the early days of of x-men who's gonna save the day well it looks like it's gonna be x-force at the very end of that issue spider-man shows up and so when we jump into this issue 
What strikes you about Spider-Man, obviously drawn by Todd McFarlane? It's funny. When when I was reading this issue, Spider-Man's like internal monologue, I don't know about you, but all I could hear was the 90s animated series voice narrating and talking. A couple of things that I noticed in particular was the style in which McFarlane draws Spider-Man is so distinct. And even though it's, you know, the eyes are a little bit bigger, certain things are exaggerated. It just felt like, to me, like that's what Spider-Man looked like. But as you go further into this story, and I'm going to talk more about the art, because I spent a lot of time looking at the art, you could see the very over-exaggerated 90s style with the huge shoulder pads and people with gigantic hands and multiple biceps and calf muscles, and it was like super over-exaggerated 90s style art, which is cool for the time and very fun. A thing that I noticed between both books, and I'll talk about this, is Juggernaut in the Spider-Man book is red, and Juggernaut in the X-Force book is brown. Yes. Which threw me off. But the biggest thing, and it's a little weird, and you know, I know it's sensitive for people, but growing up in New York, and I actually was at Ground Zero seven days before 9-11 and the World Trade, when I turned the page digitally through comiXology and you see one of the world trade towers destroyed and blown to bits at least the top of it it was weird to see that i'm like wow that was there at that time and i remember i've been to the world trade center and i've seen the buildings and i was i've experienced it multiple times before and after and uh, it was just kind of a whoa oh, oh my god moment where i had to like stop and pause and kind of read the panel around it and see what was going on because I didn't read the, the book, the issue prior. So that was kind of jarring. And yeah, surprising. it's definitely, it's one of those things where, because this is taking place 10 years before 9-11 and even two years before the first World Trade Center bombings. Yeah. So, so it's one of those things like it wasn't like they were pulling from the headlines and being insensitive or anything like that. Like this was just an idea of wouldn't that be crazy? Like it couldn't be imagined that that would be done and those buildings were just such an icon of the New York skyline, especially like cinematically. Like it happens yeah. to me all the time when I'm watching a movie. I was just watching the King Kong movie from 1976, the Dino mm. De Laurentiis film, and that the whole final act of that movie takes place on the World Trade Center towers. Kong jumps from one to the other, you know, and so it's just one of those things where it was a big part of pop culture in general to think about. Even simpler, I mean, we just had, you know, the Christmas holiday, and we were watching Home Alone 2 the other day, and the beginning when he gets to New York City, he goes to the top of the World Trade Center and they have a big helicopter shot of Macaulay Culkin on top of the World Trade Center tower overlooking New York City. Yeah, and even tying it to comics, you know, several years later when we finally are getting the teaser trailer for the Sam Raimi Spider-Man film, the final shot of that trailer was a helicopter that Spidey had captured the bad guys and suspended it in a web between the two towers and then 9-11 happened and they had to pull that trailer. Yeah, I remember that. That was such a cool moment because part of the movie is supposed to take place there and they, and they changed it and they did a whole different thing but they pulled that part of the trailer too that's right i forgot about that the thing that they also mentioned again this is without any sort of context for any of the things that would come the opening to the x-force 
issue, they actually are catching you up from what happened in the Spider-Man issue, and it says the situation. Mutant terrorists, Black Tom, Cassidy, and Juggernaut, have blown up one of the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center. So again, I mean, just the whole connection of all those things you wouldn't expect. Now, moving off that particular kind of jarring topic, one thing I wanted to mention to you, Michael... I know you read this on Comixology, but the special thing about these issues, which was something that McFarlane and Liefeld were always being either chastised by their editors for, but praised by the comic book reading public, was they had changed the format of comics for this. These were to be read horizontally. Yeah. The whole issue is actually you turn it over and then you flip it up and you look at it from top to bottom. So they have like full page spreads, but in a different format than you're used to seeing a splash page you know so when we decided we were going to talk about these two issues before i bought them on comiXology i went to my local comic book store and asked about these these issues and my friend who works there was like oh the sideways books i didn't even know (laughs) he didn't even have them and i was like well now i gotta find these and trying to read them on the phone was awful that i just took my laptop out and and looked at it on my laptop because it's just you don't get the perspective and now i want to now I want to find the books and actually like hold them in my hands and look at it that way too. Yeah, they're pretty neat. Like I said, I, I was lucky enough to get like the first seven issues of X-Force from my Fred's older brother. So I'm actually flipping through them here. And I, this is the other thing I wanted to mention between them is that, you know, this is an opportunity where McFarlane is drawing X-Force. So that's kind of a big deal. He's drawing Rob Liefeld's characters. And I will say that I'm not a super huge fan of McFarlane's style in general. Like I really obviously love his Spider-Man and I like his Juggernaut, but the way he draws the X-Force characters they just look kind of weird i feel like liefeld works a lot better again it's just one character but his spider-man looks better in comparison to mcfarland's cable i don't know if that jumped out at you at all michael just the the differences between the way that each artist is drawing the same characters between the two books so i'm a big cable fan and the way that McFarlane drew Cable in this is a particular panel where the armor that he's wearing is so over-exaggerated and big. I'm like, this dude could never move. Like, there's no <laughs> way. Like, how, how does a person move with with armor that big? It's impossible. And it, it took me out of it a little bit. But yes, like you could clearly see the difference in their styles. I like McFarlane's Spider-Man better than I like Liefeld's Spider-Man, but I do like Liefeld's Cable better than I like McFarlane's Cable. I, I will agree. And, and I will say that each of them actually have a cool moment. Uh, I, again, for me, like these are not books that I read on a regular basis at the time. They just didn't appeal to me. I never really liked Rob Liefeld's art, and I knew it was hot for the moment, but it didn't appeal to me. Same with McFarlane. Like, his characters were always too rubbery to me and like extended and stretched out. They just looked weird, so I was never super on board, but there's a scene in the Spider-Man issue where Shatterstar is fighting with juggernaut and he just comes out of it it just reaches this fever point and he stabs out his eye with one of his swords that was cool that was a cool moment yeah and it just cuts to this red panel with black blood spray i assume that was some sort of censorship thing or mcfarland's like either it's going to be dramatic and then i won't get in trouble but i the one thing that that stuck stood out to me for that was i didn't realize that juggernaut had a healing fact because he basically explains that he's 
he's like, idiots, I have magic coursing through my veins. It protects and heals me at a rate far greater than yours. I can already feel it working. There, I can see again. You know, I was like, huh? Like, I didn't realize that that was part of Juggernaut's power. I just thought once he got going, he couldn't be stopped. I wonder if sometimes artists or writers kind of like shoehorn abilities in just to tell their story like you know superman is the a classic case of this has gotten like random powers periodically like, oh yeah he could do that i haven't seen the new star wars movie but i've heard that they gave them new abilities that never existed before but it was to tell the story this way and i'm like all right they kind of just shoehorned in a little extra powers who knows but yeah. I feel like that was probably the case in this story. Well, and I feel like at this point, you know, Rob and Todd could do no wrong. So they're yeah. like, yeah, just let them do it. The kids want to see this. But speaking of which, so on Rob's side, in his issue, also a moment featuring Shatterstar. They must have both just loved this character. Like, let's let him do cool stuff. Uh, but there is a moment which, to me, was a little sacrilegious, I guess you would say, because they do a fastball special, and they call it that. But in this case, instead of Colossus, throwing Wolverine, it's Warpath throwing Shatterstar. I saw that. Yeah, it's kind of like, well, I don't know. I can tell you're you're a fanboy yourself, Rob, and that's why you're putting that in there. But it just feels like that's the move for one character and one character alone. Only Wolverine gets thrown. <laughs> Shatterstar is no Wolverine. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, and, and it's funny because that leads to the ultimate conclusion, which is they're able to get Juggernaut's helmet off because Shatterstar's blades were forged with magic. And because Juggernaut, that's all his powers are mystical only shatterstar's magical blades could loosen it and remove it i just think that was kind of convenient uh, a way to end the issues yeah, and that's where his vulnerability is when his helmet comes off then he's he's more vulnerable yeah and then this is the other thing i just want to mention about this x-force issue as we close out on that is i remember how big the X-Men toy line was, and we're going to get into the action figures in a little bit. But reading this issue really filled me in on, oh, that's where all those characters came from. Because I remember there were so many being released, and they were like all from X-Force, and I wasn't yeah. reading X-Force, so I didn't know who Gideon was. And GW Bridge appears at the end of this issue chasing Cable. I don't know why I bought his action figure, and maybe it was on clearance or something, but I had it, and I never knew who he was. And I didn't realize either that he's a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. It filled in a lot of gaps for me just reading these two issues of comics that I was purposely avoiding, I guess, at the time. It did kind of bring me down memory lane, but also made me realize why I wasn't reading certain books at the time. Like, uh, uh, yeah, I, I can see why I missed this. One thing I did like about the x-force issue is how like there's a single panel where deadpool kind of appears and he, and he kidnaps a guy in it and uh that was kind of cool because i don't know if at this point has cable met deadpool yet in the comics i'm not really sure i don't know because it's pretty early on right in the x-force run yeah well we'll hear from people online i'm sure they'll tell us they certainly were not the mismatched duo that they became in later years yeah so this spider-man issue is the final of todd mcfarlane working at marvel and there's a little panel a little blurb right at the end that says to all you readers of the past few years thanks 
It's been a blast. Todd McFarlane. And that must have caught so many people off guard. I don't think that was being promoted. That wasn't something that Marvel said, like, well, get this issue because it's going to be the last one. You think they would do that, you know, that they would put that on the cover or something and make a big deal about it. But I think at the time they were not 100% aware because in the letters section at the end, Todd writes a little goodbye letter essentially to everybody. And he says, well, folks, I know you don't want to hear this or maybe some some of you do but this is my last issue of spider-man for the foreseeable future then he banks a bunch of people but then he goes on to say now the reason why i'm quitting the book on august 9th 1991 at 5:04 p.m my wife and i were blessed with our first child i had for months planned to take time off to be around my baby and now that time is here seeing her pretty face makes that decision much easier besides seeing my daughter cyan grow up it's also time to lend a helping hand to my wife wanda who has stood by me through thick and thin so basically he was using his daughter as the excuse for leaving the book but if you know comics history of this period you know that just a few months later he's going to be gathering up an army of creative talent the top tier at marvel and staging a walkout to form image comics oh yeah he does like the great purge i remember that it was a big deal at the time and we'll, we'll be getting into that in a lot more detail in just a few issues but yeah i think he used his daughter as an excuse to to leave but i think that they knew that he was going to be leaving to start his own company and that's why they didn't want to promote it like they didn't want to make this a big deal i think they intentionally made it less public knowledge that he was leaving in order to maybe blind people from knowing that and it's interesting too because they actually mention here i hope all you todd fans will stick around even with todd leaving we've got some special events lined up to entice you to do so and then they talk about how you know the next issue spider-man dies it also features thanos they talk about eric larson coming in for a few issues and so it says the next great era of spider-man is about to begin and you'll be here for it so the ultimate story is very interesting it's gonna kind of blow the top off the industry at this point because remember marvel is the top selling publisher at this time and has been for coming up on two years and they are are the big dogs in the industry and so with the idea of mcfarlane off this book was certainly going to damage their sales they still had liefeld you know doing x-force but they were about to sour their relationship with him pretty soon as well speaking of major artists or writers leaving marvel there's one other huge huge change where chris claremont the long long time writer of x-men is leaving marvel there's an interview article about that in wizard magazine yeah well what's very interesting about this is like michael said he'd been on the books for 16 years he had been writing uncanny x-men and remember the x books really were the best-selling books for all those years so he was their guy you know he was the one keeping the lights on at marvel you know they'd have a few big stories here and there but he was the constant and now what are they saying jim lee is in everybody loves his art okay we're gonna launch a new x book so there's gonna be uncanny x-men and Will Sportacio is going to do the art on that book, and then Jim Lee is going to be doing it on this new book, just like we gave Todd his own Spider-Man book. So again, Chris Claremont, this initially, if you read the interview, is just him saying, well, there's going to be two X-Men books. Originally, they wanted to do like a bi-monthly thing, and they just wanted it to be the same story, but in two different titles. I said no, and it goes on to explain basically, oh, well, you know, I love all the characters, so I want 
want to use all the characters, so that's why I'm writing both books. And then at the very end, there is an extra box that was added. So so I'll, I'll read it to you here. This is called Epilogue. This may well be the last interview Chris Claremont gives concerning the X-Men for quite a while. Shortly after this conversation, Chris announced that he was resigning from the writing chores on X-Men and Uncanny X-Men, following a series of editorial differences with Bob Harris. I invited Chris to do an addendum to the interview, an invitation he politely declined. For the next several months, Chris will be touring the country, promoting his comics work in his new novel, Grand as well as working on a third novel. So, <laughs> this was supposed to be a big celebration, and just a few issues in, Chris Claremont is gone. Now, I know, Michael, you said you were reading it, and then you kind of fizzled out. What was your reasoning behind that? You could tell, I mean, have you ever read any of the, the tail end of his X-Men run? No, I, not too many issues. I have an assortment of them, but uh, it wasn't anything I was reading consistently. Even as a, as a kid, I was kind of like, the term would be, nowadays, you'd say like oh he really phoned it in and i just wasn't i wasn't into it that's when they relaunched it with jim lee i was excited for that too but i could never really get myself hooked onto x-men in the comics whereas i loved the animated series and i've loved most of the movies but the comics at that time period i wasn't a big fan of nowadays i'm a little bit more into x-men than i was then and i looked back at some issues this past week i was like wow it just doesn't do it for me i was like "Eh, all right whatever it feels like throwaway stories yeah well and here's the thing with what was going on there you know it mentioned the editorial differences with the x-men editor bob harris now if you want the real story behind what was going on you can actually go if you're an amazon prime uh, subscriber and it might be at some other streaming services as well there's a documentary it's called chris claremont's x-men and it's basically just interviews with him and all his other collaborators over the years talking about his run again 16 years he started in 1975 he ends in 1991 and all of his writing experience and what went into making it such a great book how he developed the characters why he loved them but when it gets to this part what he says is basically i was willing to work with jim because jim didn't want to be just an artist jim wanted to help co-plot the book and i was okay with that but what happened was jim wanted more control and he wanted to direct the stories and since he was drawing it he would wait until the last minute to turn in the pages because the marvel method for those who don't know is the writer and the artist the writer gives a basic plot outline and then the artist draws it all out embellishes and creates the story visually then the writer comes back in and they put in the dialogue that makes it all fit and work together that's what stanley and jack kirby did back in the day but chris claremont was getting upset because jim was not following his plots jim was creating action that he had not put in there and then all he could do at the last minute was write a few things of dialogue to try to make sense of it and then it would go to the stands and he saw what jim was doing and he got really mad so he just basically said look if jim is not going to work with me and bob harris who is the editor says look the art is what is selling this book. Jim is what sold 8 million copies, not your story. And so Chris Claremont's like, fine, I'm out of here. If you're not going to fight for me, and I've been here 16 years, and I've been doing this and being your best-selling book, I, I just can't handle that. I thought that was really interesting, you know, because Jim Lee was like the wonder boy there, but he also was getting a little bit of a big head, it seemed. He was kind of pushing his creative muscle, so to speak. I don't find that surprising. In 2018, I went to New York 
Comic-Con, which I, tr- I try to go do every couple of years or so, and he was there. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's an artist alley. And I went over to him, and I, you know, I didn't have any books for him to sign. I didn't even know he was going to be there till I got there. And I'm usually pretty up on that. I just went over and said, listen, you know, I'm a big fan of your work, and I, I admire you and whatever. It was just like a 10-second conversation. He was super humble about it, super nice. Just, just say, hey, thanks, man. Appreciate it. You know, cool. Good to talk to you. And that was it. But he had a line of people, mostly our age, that were there to just say, hey, we were fans of your stuff. We miss you. Well, I'm, I'm surprised you didn't pump him for information on your favorite character, Kitty Pride. I thought you would be talking all about it. <laughs> I- you know, there was so many people there that I just didn't want to, like, chew his ear off and everything. It was kind of one of those things where it's like, hey, if I went back later and he was by himself, I would have asked him more. But a year or two prior, Stan Lee was there right before he passed away. And um, I waited online for four and a half hours to meet Stan. And they were charging $100 per autograph. And all he would do was sign and you move on. And at four and a half hours, the security guard said, Stan is tired. We're cutting the line. He'll be back in five hours. You can stand here and wait, or you can come back the next day. And I just couldn't stand there and wait any longer. Then I didn't get his autograph, and I regret it. But that's close to ever be to that kind of greatness. So let's dive into a little Guy Gardner's Gimmicks A Go-Go. How bizarre. And a a big thing at this time was, you know, varying covers and second printings. And in this particular issue of Wizard, they're talking about a couple of uh, glow-in-the-dark covers. One from Sandman Special Number 1 and Ghost Rider 15. Two books that I never really read, and I know that Sandman is very revered as a comic, but by the time I was trying to get into it, it was so far in that I'm like, I am never going to be able to catch up. But I, I respect it as a story, and it's it's a cool book. I think it's just hilarious that a Sandman book needed a glow-in-the-dark cover. Because when you think about it, the Vertigo line was like the prestige line of DC Comics, right? This is the heady for the intellectuals to enjoy Sandman. And so to me, it was one of those things where the idea of a glow-in-the-dark cover on Sandman's special number one is like, you really don't need it. And I'm sure DC was just doing whatever they could to sell any book at that point. And if you look at the cover itself, it's actually just, it's a standard Sandman type cover, but what it does is it has these markings, because Dave McKean, who did those, they were just lots of mixed media random stuff making the images up, and so you're like, oh, okay, they're just some white shapes. But then when you turn off the lights, then it makes a face out of those shapes. And so that's what it was. That was the Uh, gimmick. I could see the eyes and the mouth and the nose. You know, it's one of those things where you you wonder, you're like, did Neil Gaiman really want that? Like, would he have (laughs) liked that? Probably not. He had to be embarrassed, I'm sure. He's just like, whatever. (laughs) Like, you're messing with my masterpiece. Why are you doing this? And then you have Ghost Rider 15 had a big glow-in-the-dark Ghost Rider head on it. But what I find interesting about this is that this column, Collecting Comics in the 90s, that Pat McCollum would write each month now, we're seeing, the idea of a second printing, for those who don't know what that is, basically what it came down to was, okay, a book sold much better than the publisher thought, so the retailers are selling out, 
So they're asking for more of that issue so they can sell more because everybody wants to read it. So then you do a second printing. And what Pat mentions here is he says, going back a year and a half ago, second prints of comics were considered no more than reading copies. These reprints were a simple way to supply dealers with enough copies to satisfy their customers. Rarely did these second prints experience a price increase. And when they did, it was next to nothing. So there was a time where it was just like, oh, well, you know, it's not that original printing, so it's worth nothing. But then he goes on to explain this all ended with the release of Spider-Man number one. Marvel took a book at the time that had the highest print run in history, 2.8 million copies, and reprinted it with a metallic gold cover, causing a nationwide stir that rocked the industry. The public considered it a new book, or another variation on the original, which created something unprecedented. The gold second print has surpassed the first printing in popularity and value. This reading copy was now the book to own, and the floodgates were open for future second prints. Marvel was saying, okay, well, if the book was popular and we re-release it with a new cover, then people are going to want that because they want to collect all of it because now it's going to be worth money. And apparently they were worth money. I find that interesting thing because I never paid attention to a first print or a second print. That was not something that computed to me at the time. Did that ever jump out at you, Michael, when you were grabbing a comic off the shelf? At the time, no, not at all. You see it a lot more now and your comic stores will tell you, oh, it's a second printing, whatever. I still don't care all that much. If I'm going to read it, I'm going to read it. If it's you know if it's something that I want to get for a collector's value, I try to go for the first printing if I think it's going to be a big book, but it still never seemed like a big deal to me. This is funny to me. So if you remember last issue, they said, well, you can't just slap a fancy cover on a piece of junk and expect it to sell. So his closing statement is pretty contrary to that now in some ways. He says, now don't take all this the wrong way. Second prints are not a bad thing, quite the contrary. The fact that these new books are unpredictable is fantastic. This industry could use more of this type of product. Items which stir up the waters and keep people guessing. If this industry wishes to expand and come close to reaching its potential, comic book companies should continually explore new ways to increase their readership. This is one of the many projects which is helping comics to grow tremendously. Let's hope the companies continue in this direction and don't sit on their hands, keeping the industry at a standstill. So now it's basically like, gimmick covers? Yes! That's what we need! I don't even know if that has continued, would you say that that is even to this day now something where people say, oh, well, the second print with this cover is worth more? I, I don't think any second printing is worth more than than a, a single first issue. Maybe last year when Batman Damned came out, they did a second printing because the I don't know if you know about the first printing had uh, Bruce Wayne fully naked in, in this particular issue. I did not see that. And the reprinting, they edited that part out. (laughs) All right. So let's dive real quick into Gambit's deck of cards. And as a follow-up to our last conversation regarding the trading cards, there's a little article here that I'm going to read a little excerpt to. In 1990, Impel Marketing launched its brand-new Marvel Trading Cards Series 1. At first, the cards were not flying off the shelves. Sports card traders were not enthused with the prospect of comic book cards. The cards began to get very popular with younger card and comic book collectors, 
And before you knew it, the stores were out of them. Unopened cases of Marvel cards were now worth excess of $500. This incredible response sparked a wave of new non-sport trading cards to hit the market. Wow, so that that's crazy. Last episode, we were talking about Marvel cards and the big impact they had, at least for me, and everybody wanted to collect holograms and all those things. The fact that the Marvel Universe Series 1 was a surprise hit, and now an unopened box is going for $500? Because if you look at the current value now, like on eBay, like this is still actually a dream of mine, and I just haven't made it a reality. I want an unopened box of Marvel Universe Series 1 trading cards, even though I have a full set. You know, like I still, it's the box. That was like the dream as a kid to buy a whole box. And right now they go for like maybe $130-150. Just still a lot of money. It's I mean it's... Yeah, that's it's a chump change, but I just think the fact that it could go for five hundred back then, that just surprised me quite a bit. And in this issue, last time if you recall, series two Marvel Universe trading cards did not have prices. Instead they told us all the artists, but now they actually do have a price listed for each of the cards and the other other point of contention for me at least with the reporting that wizard was doing at the time they said that the x-force trading cards that came packaged in the polybagged editions of x-force number one were part of the marvel universe series two trading card set i had never seen that it's not on the checklist However, Wizard does list it here as a subset. Hmm. So it has the X-Force subset. And if you have it all, five of those cards, they were worth $7 at the time. So Wizard was really pushing that. I just, I don't understand if Impel intended that. Why did they not somehow, you know, have an explanation card that came in packs or something that would at least indicate that there were you know, promo cards or chase cards, however you wanted to look at it. Yeah. Anyway, I just, I thought it was interesting that at least as Wizard is reporting, it considered a subset. I did a little research and looked on eBay, and it is true that people that say they have a complete set do include those cards. In addition to, there was a different subset that on the back of the cards, it had like a watermark of a diamond. Hmm. You know, they were just like cards from the set, but now you know. There you go. And now it's time for a new segment. That's right. It's Azrael's Action Figure Fury. So, in the last issue, number one, they did include an action figure price guide, but it was literally just saying, okay, Mattel's Secret Wars figures, Kenner's Superpowers figures, and the Toy Biz Batman movie and DC Superheroes figures, and it just kind of listed them on one page, and that was it. With this, they've actually turned it into a full feature section from a guy named Brian Cunningham called Toying Around, and his logo is pretty fun because it apes the superpowers logo with like the stars jutting Mm -hmm. out from it yeah but i love his perspective because action figures i have to say for me were one step above my comic book collecting as a kid like i was reading the comics but i was more obsessed with the action figures based on the comics oh same same 100 percent. and he mentioned something really funny here though to open up his article which i think all of us have felt do any of you have any idea how difficult it is to buy a toy these days without a crazy gaze from the cashier person I can't even look the cashier person in the eyes anymore for fear of losing my manhood. 
that was one of those things where the idea of an adult collecting toys was probably even more shameful than an adult collecting comics. Would you agree at that time, Michael? Well, let's put it this way. As an adult now in 2019 who collects toys, I still get funny looks if I go to a CVS and I say, oh, look, the Marvel Legends Fantastic Four characters are here and I'm going to pick one up. Every single time the cashier looks at me like, sir, is this for you? And I kind of look at him like, yeah, it's for me. Don't judge me. So (laughs) that doesn't go away. But to me, I feel like retailers, at least some of them, are recognizing the adult collector market. I mean, obviously, Toys R Us, before they went out of business, they were catering exclusively in their action figure aisles, it seemed, to the adult collectors and their prices reflected it. It was ridiculous to try and buy anything at Toys R Us. But Target now has filled the void. They got their Nika section. They got everything. They have the adult collector figures section. So I feel like there's less shame now. But back then, I mean, we were kids, so we could buy as many as we wanted. I I will just mention my one embarrassing moment of buying toys was more about the gender politics of the time. This is a little off comics, but I I think it's worth it because we're talking about the 90s here. You know, one of the biggest TV shows in the 90s was Beverly Hills 90210. And I was watching it not really because i was into teen soap operas but because i was interested in girls and i thought that the way to talk to girls you had to know what they liked and they liked 90210 so i'll watch it that i can talk to them they did like the 90210 that's that's true I bought the trading cards and then I would talk to these girls that I thought were cute. I didn't realize I was being put in the friend zone at the time. But at one point, I went (laughs) too far. And I went to Toys R Us. You bought the Barbies. I bought the Brenda doll, the Shannon Doherty, because it came in a bikini. And I was like, oh, this isn't bad, you know, because they were always at the beach and stuff on that show. And so... (laughs) I felt totally okay with it until I got to the cash register. And my mom the whole time is like, are you sure you want this? You don't usually buy these. And so we get to the register and she's like, you better really play with this because this is weird. And there's people in line and I'm like, mom, not me play with it. She's going to play with it. Like this imaginary girl we were getting it as a gift for. (laughs) And that was like my my pure moment of embarrassment. After I bought that doll, I was done. You know, no more 90210. That's pretty good. That's pretty funny. But uh, what do you do? You what were the the big action figure lines around this time that you were super into, Michael? The Marvel action figure line and GI Joe. I was a big GI Joe guy, and I don't know if you remember this. Knowing you, you probably do. There was a place I had like a layaway thing for for a Michael Knight and Kit car. Yeah. I had that, and I was obsessed with that thing. Oh my god! I got that at a garage sale when I was like eleven or twelve, and I was so excited because you would flip the license plate, and then yes. it would make Kit talk. Yeah. <laughs> mine was missing the doors, but I was like, "It's still cool." The doors fell off. Mine, the doors fell off in like a week. <laughs> See, that's it. So even if you bought it new, there was no hope with your <laughs> with your kids. I was a big fan of the Swamp Thing action figures that were based on the animated series, and I, I, I thought those were really cool. But I, I always just kind of bought bits and pieces from every line. Like, I wasn't super dedicated to any one where I'm like, oh, I'm going to have all of them. 
me too. And I had those friends who did have every figure. Like, I knew the guy, okay, he has every Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles toy, so I'll go to his house for that. Oh, this guy has every Terminator 2 action figure, whatever it was. My buddy Joe, you name a figure, he had it. And, and we used to play with him all the time. And When I have him on this show, you're going to be like, oh my god, this guy, he gets it. <laughs> the legend of Joe grows. The big thing I remember at this time, though, what really launched it off, you mentioned the Toy Biz Marvel superheroes figures, and those were a big deal in terms of like, oh wow, like really nicely sculpted, seemingly, but they were, they were kind of terrible in retrospect, at least that initial wave. Chubby Iron Man and Thor looked ridiculous, and you know, like they were just kind of very stiff. I remember I had the Captain America that launched his shield and the US agent repaint. They weren't fun to play with. That was the problem. I was like, I was excited they existed and I loved the box art, but I just never could actually have an adventure with them. And it was the same when they did their DC superheroes line. They were based on the superpowers figures, but the mold was wrong or the plastic they used was terrible because superpowers figures are like the best sculpts you ever saw on a superhero figure, like likeness wise and just musculature and everything. And they were so doughy and they didn't have detail the dc superheroes ones like the batman figures for the movie and all of that so toy biz they were right on top of it in producing but at the beginning they weren't anything to get super excited about and i had the one spider-man that had the suction cups on his hands yeah that you could like stick to things and like all the paint from like the spider webbing on his costume wore off after a short span of time and captain america's uh, red on his chest wore away and <laughs> and that's what i think it was at this time is collectors or at least comic book fans that was all you had and those were the representations you were just happy to have anything and then what happened i think what really kicked it off was when toy biz released the x-men figures that first wave and they had these like giant ads in the comics that were like full color mm-hmm. they would like shove either in the middle or on the back cover of a comic and they were beautiful you know it's just like wolverine like it was kind of goofy his mask could be worn as a ring that's what they were selling it to you as <laughs> like i remember that now or magneto had little magnetic parts that could stick to him and all that uh, you know i thought the nightcrawler was probably my favorite of that grouping because it just it, he had a cool pose and he had the suction cup so you could stick him to things make him hang upside down but i remember my friend eric and i before those figures came out we were like what if they made x-men toys and like cyclops's visor lit up and then you could like make stuff move and it would explode and then we saw him on the shelf and we're like they made it they were listening they made our idea That's pretty funny. Because I had the Danger Room playset at one point, and that's what it would do, is you would, like, point and click, and you'd push a button, and it would split something open, as if Cyclops had blasted it. Yeah, so, you know, we could obviously talk about action figures and toys till we're blue in the face, but um, let's dive into a little something I like to call, what the... Do you have the time to listen to me whine? About nothing and everything all at once I am one of those melodramatic fools Neurotic to the bone, no doubt about it So, I wanted to ask you, and I've been wondering this, because we've, we've known each other now for a couple of years, and you're one of those people that's like a, I feel like you're like almost like a cultural anthropologist, because you like 
no pop culture things. Like, I can't even wrap my head around some of the stuff that you know. And did you get a Troop Beverly Hills VHS for Christmas? Is that <laughs> my personal superhero, Phyllis <laughs> Neffler from Troop Beverly Hills? Well, yeah, I mean, one of the things that I do, if you've heard uh, one of the special episodes we did here on the Retro Network talking about VHS collecting. I always had, a, obviously, an affinity for films. We both do. But VHS was always very special to me just as a format. And I, I can't take all the credit for this, but if, if that's the specific vein you want to go, I have a collection of every dead media release of Troop Beverly Hills. If you don't know this movie, 1989, it's about Shelley Long leading a group of, they're called wilderness girls, but they're Girl Scouts, and they're all rich and uppity, and they have to learn how to survive in the wilderness. It's just a very funny movie filled with a lot of 80s cameos. I know it well. I had, a, I had a friend in high school that we used to watch it all the time. She was obsessed with it. That's awesome. So when when you say dead media, do you mean you like have like a Betamax of it and like a laser disc of it as well, or like yeah? So basically every form that it's ever been released in for home video, I own. There was actually not a Betamax release, surprisingly, but every VHS release there were several different versions. There was a clamshell case. I even have rental copies copies that I bought from the rental store where we used to rent the movie. Like, I have that version I rented as a kid. I have a version on Video 8. Yeah. That I, have you heard of that? Oh, yeah. Because it's just like these tiny little cassette-sized tapes. It's also known as Digital 8. And freshman year of college, one of my buddies had a Digital 8 camera that you could record video to. It was a little bit higher compression rate than recording to a VHS over-the-shoulder camera. That's my little video, you know, technical nerd. Says the film guy who knows all the behind-the-scenes. Yeah, so have, like, the original DVD release, then they had a Blu-ray release, and then this last year was the 30th anniversary release uh, on Blu-ray. So that's what I got for Christmas, finally. So I have all the American releases... And now what I have are foreign releases. So now I try to find, like, here's one from England. Like, I'm, I'm hunting down one from Poland. You know, I want one from Japan. But but I have them from random places like Turkey. And do you watch them? The ones that I can. So that's the problem is the European releases, they're all in PAL. And I don't have a PAL player. But the Brazilian release that I have is on VHS. And I actually happen to speak Portuguese because I lived in Brazil for several years years and so with that i can actually watch it and enjoy it which is kind of fun that's a special copy to me but yeah again i can't take the credit for that idea i will mention there's a great guy if anybody wants to uh, follow him on twitter sean robert is an awesome guy who he collects every copy of the monster squad which is another movie very special to me as a kid is that the one with fred savage that's little monsters okay. the monster squad basically doesn't have anybody you know and that's part of the problem unless you were a big kids incorporated fan like i was ryan lambert plays rudy in that movie but yeah but anyway yeah so he collects every version he was actually in a monster squad documentary that just came out because of his collection and so i'm trying to do the same with troop beverly hills although i don't know that i'll ever be in a documentary about troop beverly hills dude you never know 
Never, ever know. All right. Well, this is my question for you then, Michael, as we close out here. So you've mentioned that you collect comics so often based on the covers. And one thing that has bugged me for many years is the cover is used to sell the book. Really, that's the first thing that gets anybody's eye. But when they do like a painted cover, for example, but it doesn't reflect the art that is on the inside. So they get a different artist than is doing the interior work. And that has always frustrated me. You know, it's like if I see a painted cover, I'm expecting Marvels or Kingdom Come. Like when I bought Earth X, which is a series I love that Alex Ross helped to write, but he did all these covers for it. But then when you open it on the inside, it's a different artist doing the art. It's not painted in any way. This character designs are by Alex Ross, but he didn't do the actual art. And that frustrates me. I just bought Mike Allred, who I mentioned last episode was doing a dick tracy series and i was like oh that's perfect for him it's a great art style and so sight unseen i bought a trade of it and then when i opened it i was like oh this is not his art he just did the covers has that ever frustrated you in the past well first you need another hour to talk about this with me and (laughs) secondly i need to crack open a beer because i can go in great detail with this it makes me furious When I see some beautiful covers and I open the book and I'm like, it is garbage art to the point where I don't even want to turn the page. And I hate to say this, but Marvel is a little bit more notorious for it than DC, in particular with X-Men. They'll release these breathtaking covers, you know, by like Stanley Lau or like other guys that are just really, you know, artists and do some beautiful work. And you open the book and it's like my three-year-old could have drawn this book better. And it's just, it will actually cause me to not buy a book, even though I may love the cover, because of the art inside. And sometimes what I'll do is I'll try to find the, you know, every once in a while they release a cover as like a 11 by 17 art print. And I'll order that or I'll buy it at a convention or whatever. But that makes me so mad. Before I knew any better... I go and I'm like, oh, that's a cool cover. I'm going to grab that. I get home, I look at it, and I'm like, I just wasted three bucks or four bucks on this book, and it's just awful. But yes, that is a big pet peeve of mine, 100%. All right. So I'm glad to know we're on the same page there. And as we close that, I just want to mention, so we talked a lot about X-Force in this. We talked about Todd drawing Rob's characters. And I recently uh, was looking through this copy of a catalog called Advance Comics. And I don't know if you ever read this back in the day, but basically it was just a huge catalog. And I remembered having an issue and I looked for it on eBay. I was like, there it is. And basically it just you know lists everything that was coming out for a certain month you could order it ahead of time i assume it was more for retailers but either way inside one of the books that it was advertising was x farce and what they said was it was just a parody you know it says actual cover will be todd mcfarland really but you know obviously the inside art was not going to be the case so i just thought that was hilarious like the idea that todd mcfarland yeah he did one more thing in that vein but this time he was taking it you know to the nth degree of ridiculous anyway I've enjoyed this conversation. We love hearing from you. So please reach out to us because we can't wait to hear more. But before we go, got one more special thing for you. Now it is time to give you the lowdown on how you can win one of two Lego minifigure two-packs from minifiguresmarket.com. In honor of our second episode, 
up for grabs are a Superman versus General Zod or a Silver Surfer versus Galactus set. All you have to do is tell us your favorite superhero showdown in comics. Could be hero versus villain or hero versus hero. Just make your choice known with a short explanation as to why and if you can let us know what issue where the team up took place, all the better. You can tweet your response to us using the hashtag WizardsBattle or email your entry to wizardscomicspod at gmail.com. There's two chances to win, and the winners will be chosen in a random drawing. So good luck, geeks. And that's it for this episode, folks. Next time around, we're getting a shot of adamantium lace adrenaline from Wolverine as we explore Wizard Issue 3, and we'll have a special guest who goes way back with Logan. Until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.